Hello and a warm welcome to another episode of the When in Spain podcast. I'm Paul Burge, your host for this podcast show. This episode actually um, going to be a little different to the usual episodes and making a little bit of a diversion. Um, normally this podcast is all about Spain, Spanish life, Spanish culture. However, I thought we'd have a little change. In this episode, I'm taking you to Portugal. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about a trip that Karina and myself made a few weeks back uh, for our summer holidays um, to the Portuguese capital of Lisbon or Lisboa, and then an onward trip to the Portuguese autonomous island of Madeira. Now, I don't normally do this. In fact, I've never done this before. I've never done an episode that's not about Spain. I don't think. No, I don't think I have. Um, why am I Why am I talking about Portugal in a podcast which is about Spain? Well, good question. My kind of thinking behind it was that Lisbon specifically, not so much uh, Madeira, but certainly Lisbon is a viable and well worthwhile uh, side trip from Spain if you're spending any any sort of long amount of time uh, on the Iberian Peninsula. Lisbon is uh, certainly a viable side trip and well worth it, at least for you know a long weekend. And if you think about it, uh, geographically, Lisbon, well, from Madrid, where I'm speaking to you from, uh, Lisbon is more or less the same distance from Madrid as Barcelona is from Madrid. Really, Madrid is slap bang in the middle, almost in the geographical centre of Spain. And uh, when you look on the map, actually, you know, Madrid is sort of almost equidistance between Barcelona and uh, and Lisbon. So for this reason, I thought, well, why not? It will be interesting uh, to uh, make a change and uh, talk to you guys, the Spain lovers, about, about Lisbon. And uh, at the end of the episode, I'm going to talk a bit about Madeira as well. Karina and me uh, had our summer holidays booked to go to Madeira. And luckily, uh, during this complicated time of COVID-19, we were still able to make that trip. Our flights were not cancelled. We didn't have any kind of logistical problems at all, actually. Um, when we went to book the trip, actually, our, our plan for the trip was actually to go directly to Madeira. Uh, the reason being is that we have a, a good friend who's from Madeira and who lives there, who we actually met back in the UK about five or six years ago. And she moved back to Madeira and I don't know, for the last two, probably three years, we've been meaning to make a trip uh, to, Madeira, to Madeira to visit her. Um, but the flights have always been super, super, super expensive. Now, I don't know if it's because of COVID-19, but we managed to find flights uh, to Madeira from Madrid for about 150 euros return each. However, when we went to book, we realised that uh, there are no direct flights to Madeira from, well, from Madrid, certainly. I don't know if there are from any other parts of Spain, um, but there are no, di no, no direct flights to Madeira. The only way to get there flying is to go via Lisbon and do a little escala, as they say in Spanish, a little stopover uh, in Lisbon and, and connect through Lisbon and then take what is basically an internal flight to Madeira. So when we went to book, we thought, well, you know, if we're going through Lisbon, why don't we turn that into a little city break as well? So we did. And we ended up spending, I think, two nights uh, only in Lisbon uh, to break up the trip and also just to you know soak up the sights of Lisbon. 
Lisbon as well. Um, the curious thing about our Portuguese cousins next door is that it's actually very difficult in terms of train travel, at least, to take a train directly from Spain across into Portugal. There is a kind of overnight sleeper train which takes you from Madrid up into Galicia and then goes back down via Porto, I think. A really long and quite expensive uh, journey, actually. And it's a really curious thing. The transport connections between Spain and Portugal um, are not great. So the most viable way to get to Lisbon is to fly. But don't worry, because the flights are usually fairly reasonably priced from Madrid to Lisbon. And the flight is, is nothing. It's a short hop of about 45 minutes to one hour flying time from Madrid to Lisbon. Uh, you know, Just literally a hop over Extremadura and the uh, interior of Portugal down to Lisbon. So that's what I thought I would do in this episode, guys. I'm going to run through uh, what we saw in Lisbon. I'm going to give you my recommendations for things to visit, my observations. Definitely going to be talking about food and drink in uh, in Lisbon as well. And then a bit later in this episode, I'll uh, do a little roundup of, of Madeira as well for anyone who's interested possibly in the island of Madeira, uh, which was absolutely breathtakingly, stunningly beautiful. I mean, really magical island. Just before we head off to Lisbon, um, just like to say a big thank you to new When in Spain patrons. So a big gracias to Adrienne Silversberg. Big thank you to Ben Liam. Big thank you to Cody Hoover. And I also must say a big thank you to existing When in Spain patrons who have very, very kindly decided to increase their monthly pledges. So to you guys, thank you to Katie Glanfield, Rich Muniz and Kimberly Lemoy. Big thanks to you guys for supporting this podcast and the work that I do and putting it together and bringing it to you. And just quickly to say, if any other listeners enjoy the podcast and would like to show some support to keep it going and growing, as I always say, um, you too can become a patron easily and securely by signing up at the crowdfunding website called patreon.com. It's patreon.com forward slash when in Spain. You hit the page. It's all self-explanatory and you can sign up there at various uh, donation levels to support the podcast. And one other thing, I'm aware that this is going to be quite a lengthy episode. I've got a lot to pack in. But uh, one other thing I wanted to say is a big thank you to all of the listeners and followers of When in Spain who kindly responded to the question that I put out there. Um, I put the question, um, ask me anything Yep, <laughs> almost anything anyway. Ask me anything. I dropped that question into the Facebook group and I dropped the question into the uh, When in Spain Instagram account as well. And I got lots and lots of great responses, lots and lots of great questions. And really my thinking behind it was um, ask me anything. Ask me anything about Spain, about my experience here, about living here, life here, moving here, how I did it, why I did it. Um, any questions like that, basically, related to Spain that you might have uh, been wanting to ask or, uh, you know, now have the opportunity to ask. And what I'm going to do, guys, in the next episode is I'm going to collect all of these questions together, kind of put them into categories, I guess, and answer them for you. And, you know, I <laughs> didn't put the question out there as a sort of, you know, narcissist saying, yeah, ask me anything. I just love talking about myself. Um, but I thought it was a good idea because um, it 
it's a way to share useful information that many other listeners uh, may be looking for or indeed questions that other listeners may have been wanting to ask and haven't done. And so that's what I'm going to do in the next When in Spain episode, guys, is I'm going to answer all of your um, questions about life here in Spain, living in Spain, moving here. Uh, my advice, my suggestions, recommendations, all sorts of things. And thank you to all of you um, who did send me through your questions. They were all really, really good questions. Okay, so let's get into traveling to Lisbon. Just a note to say um, that during these times of COVID-19, we didn't have any problems, as I mentioned earlier. The only thing we noticed was that, well, I was going to say, were the airports particularly quiet? Yeah, Barajas Airport in Madrid was very empty uh, when we flew. When we flew, you know, in the afternoon, very few flights departing and arriving in Madrid. And in terms of safety measures, I mean, hand gel, masks all the time, Um, They did do a little uh, temperature test on us when we arrived in Lisbon. We had to wear masks on the plane all the time, of course. The plane was actually quite busy. Um, There were very few empty seats. So you were sitting, you know, I think we flew out on on a small plane, um, regional plane, which was just two seats, the aisle and then two seats, but there were no gaps. Everyone was sitting, you know, packed in next to each other. But when we arrived in Lisbon, we didn't notice any other kind of, uh, you know, extreme safety measures that were happening. We had to fill in a form on the plane where we had to give our our details, our personal details, um, our home address in Spain, the address that we were staying in in Lisbon, those kinds of things. And the forms were collected on a arrival at the airport and then we just breezed straight through that was it um so nothing else the interesting thing though when we flew from lisbon to madeira now madeira relies heavily on tourism for its uh, for its you know for its economy and they have very few cases of covid-19 or at least they have had very few cases of covid-19 on the island of madeira and to keep it that way what they're doing there on arrival they make you do a covid-19 test to see if you have the virus or not free of charge carried out in a very efficient way we arrived at about 9 p.m in Madeira after you cleared security you were funneled through into a line and uh, we had to wait about 20 minutes I think and they gave us a COVID-19 test they gave us the nose swab and throat swab test took our details again we had to provide our onward address which was our friend Betty who we were staying with in Madeira and what they did was they uh, said to us that you will receive your results within the next 12 to 24 hours so we had the test at about 9 p.m at the airport the next morning at 9 a.m they emailed us with the results incredibly quick we both tested negative (laughs) I'm pleased to say apparently I heard that people who test positive they what happens is they come and collect you from your accommodation where you've arranged to stay and they escort you off to a hotel in the hills where they force you to to do a quarantine basically uh, my impression of it was it was very well organized and very efficient and you know and the fact that it was free as well a free covid test anyway i don't really want to talk about covid-19 although at the moment of recording this episode on the 20th of august it seems at the moment that the covid cases in Spain in general are on the rise again. I'm going to hand myself over to me talking to you from Lisbon at the top of this beautiful uh, fortress and, uh, well, what they call a mirador, uh, a viewpoint 
at the Castel de São Jorge uh, in the centre of Lisbon. So let me hand you over to me, describing what I can see, a little bit about the city, and then after that I'll be back to run through a list of uh, must-see sites, uh, food, drink, and a few other observations on Lisbon as well. Vamos para Lisboa! Quando o vento malvolia E o céu mar prolongava Namorada de um voleiro No peito do As I'm speaking to you I am looking out across a patchwork of red terracotta roofs. I've got the uh, Tagus River estuary right in front of me, beautiful turquoise blue, few little boats zipping across, leaving little white chalk trails across it as I cast my eye along the Tagus River. Um, I can see it as it opens out into the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, just before it reaches the Atlantic Ocean, what can I see there? Well, a bridge resembling very closely what looks like the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. The uh, bridge that I can see, which you can just about make out in the haze of the late afternoon sunshine here on a Tuesday afternoon, is actually the 25th of April Suspension Bridge, one of Lisbon's most notable landmarks. And as I said, it spans the River Tagus. It was opened in April 1974. It connects Lisbon on the north bank of the Tagus with the commuter district of Alameda on the south bank. And actually you get a great view of it depending on which side of the plane you're sitting as you fly into Lisbon. You fly right over the estuary, right over the Tagus River. Absolutely stunning welcome to this stunning city. Um, just beyond there's the uh, bell of the cathedral that I can see also from this vantage point. And just on the south bank of the Tagus River, I can also see, um, it looks a bit like the Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro, but it's actually called the Cristo Rey, uh, which is one of Lisbon's most iconic monuments also. So that's just the other side of the uh, suspension bridge. Um, very stark looking monument. It's like a huge plinth and then on top um, you have the statue of Christ uh, with his arms uh, raised, blessing the city. That dates back to the 1950s. Its construction was actually in reverence for Portugal avoiding the horrors of World War II. What else can I see from where I'm standing? And where am I that I can get such a fantastic vantage point of the city of Lisboa? Well, I'm actually at the, and you can probably hear by the wind, the wind's picked up a bit. It's a very warm day, actually. It's about 31, 32 degrees. Um, there's a lovely stiff breeze, sea breeze blowing. Um, I'm actually standing um, on one of the ramparts of the Castello de São Jorge, uh, the St. George Castle. 
Now, they do say that the nickname for Lisbon is the city of seven hills. Um, and, well, this hilltop um, where the castle is has been fortified uh, even before the arrival of the Roman legions. In fact, um, in the later centuries, the castle walls were strengthened by the our old friends, the Visigoths and Moors, um, before falling to Portugal's first king, Alfonso Enriquez, in 1147. Um, his statue stands in the square which is just past the main gate here but from the 14th uh, to the 16th centuries Portugal's kings resided in the Palacio de Alcosovas the remains of which are now <laughs> a house and a snack bar actually but the castle itself has gone uh, undergone numerous transformations back in the 1930s several government offices uh, in fact even a firehouse were removed from the grounds exposing the walls which were duly topped with supposedly authentic looking battle yeah, we've got a few cannons, um, nice shaded ramparts with pine trees. Um, so there's been lots of uh, makeovers um, over, over the years. And I highly recommend uh, making the trip up here to get these absolutely spectacular views of Lisbon and also a really useful way of kind of getting your bearings of the city, which I'll talk a bit about later. So Lisbon, I mean, personally, I have a huge love affair with this city. I cannot uh, really emphasise just how charming uh, Lisbon is and really how charming and wonderful and beautiful Portugal is as a country. Um, when I think of Lisbon, uh, I think of hills. I think of steep hills, steep steps everywhere you go. It's a compact city, population pretty small. I mean, the greater Lisbon area is about 2 million, but really the city proper uh, has a population of around 500,000. So, I mean, think of 500,000, you're sort of talking of a city in terms of population, really the size of Malaga, maybe somewhere in between Malaga and Valencia uh, in terms of Spanish cities and you know it really doesn't for me feel like a capital city what i love about it is it's relaxed it feels very easy going compared to madrid it feels much quieter it's like you arrive in lisbon and the volume control has been turned down a few notches people are quieter the city is quieter um, it just has a, a more relaxed atmosphere the other thing I absolutely love about the city is simply its topography. We've got the city really nestling amongst the so-called seven hills. And the city slopes down to the Tagus River, which we know starts its life all the way up in northern Spain. Beautiful shimmering Tagus River, which then flows out into the Atlantic Ocean. As I said, where I'm looking now, I can see planes coming into land. I can see the suspension bridge and in the distance and the horizon, I can just see the Atlantic Ocean in the distance. What else do I think of when I think of Lisbon? I think of the beautiful azulation tiles, which you have all of the facades of the building, um, the, the, the apartment blocks, the churches, all have these beautiful ceramic ornately painted tiles uh, which reflect the sunlight which add this kind of color to the city wherever you're walking really really beautiful pastel de nata or pastel de nata the little custard cream tarts yes of course i'll talk a bit about food uh, later on in this episode 
but of course you see those everywhere as well the other thing i think of when i think of lisbon is the tram network these beautiful trams which date back to the 1930s these rickety old wooden trams um, they still run i think around six to eight routes around the city the well-known routes being the number 28 uh, tram which kind of almost does a half circuit of the city. You jump on at any point, it'll do a kind of half semicircle of the city. You, you hop off uh, at uh, the last stop and then you hop on again, uh, make a connecting 28 tram and it takes you around the, the second part of the city as well. Really fun experience. Um, really interesting to see how these tiny little trams navigate these steep, narrow streets. Um, well worth doing and great value as well and if you want to avoid the legwork of <laughs> uh, up and down and up and down because as I said you know Lisbon is a very compact city and it should be pretty easy to navigate except it's not because you're navigating steep hills or pretty much all the time so the tram highly recommend it the other thing you notice about Lisbon the last time I came I came in March and it was mild and sunny and here we are in August it's very warm and, and sunny but there's something about the light in the city you know people talk about cities by the sea there is something about the light in the city um, it's very stark very seems to bring out the color of everything so we're staying in a little pension in the neighborhood which is called Baixa which literally means low so it's like the Portuguese equivalent of Baja um, but it, but of course in Portuguese it's Baixa. There's a really interesting story uh, behind how the uh, city evolved physically, how it was sort of planned out. Um, I don't know if anyone knows this, but in 1755, Lisbon suffered a really powerful and devastating earthquake, um, which paved the way for what was <laughs> described as a despotic but enlightened first minister to put his rationalist stamp on the heart of the city. So Baixa is a grid of streets which leads down to the, uh, to the river. And uh, many of you might have seen or visited or know of this very, very majestic uh, square called Praça do Comercio. So this area, Baixa, I suppose you could say, is Lisbon's traditional downtown. Uh, gives a flavour of how things were, were done in the days before shopping malls. And it's actually, parts of it uh, are still quite run down. There are a lot of um, derelict buildings, uh, lots of buildings that I've noticed uh, walking around uh, in, in the process of being uh, gentrified, have been uh, bought up and have been uh, gentrified, I guess, into apartments, uh, shops, uh, office buildings. But it still amazes me that such a central neighbourhood still has uh, vast areas of it um, in quite bad repair, actually. And in fact, uh, you can tell by some of the names in, in the Baixa neighbourhood. You've got Rua de Auro, for example, which is Gold Street. You've got Rua dos Chapeteiros, which is uh, Shoemaker Street. You've got Rua dos Franqueiros which is uh, textiles, uh, textile merchants. 
So you really get a flavour of the kind of commerce which was coming in off the Atlantic, up the Tagus, and uh, really the doormat of the city was the the Prescia do Comercio, the uh, well commerce square, and a hive of merchant activity, or at least it was. Uh, at least it's been that way since the uh, middle of the 18th century. Before that, it was the heart of medieval Lisbon. Uh, also the largest of Lisbon's Jewish quarters, the Hudaria Grande, occupied a big chunk of the Baixa neighbourhood as well. But, as I mentioned, the earthquake that happened in 1755, well, that put paid to all of that. Charged with the job of reconstruction, the Marques de Pombal based his plan on a military encampment, actually, uh, with each street having a specific function. So the the orderly rows still stand as he planned them, um, though some of them took until the next century to finish. We've got the wonderful and uh, giant Arco Triomphal, the Triumph Arch, which caps the street of the same name. That was completed in 1873. So the Baixas grid retains absolutely nothing of the medieval Lisbon. So I was talking about the waterfront square, arcaded square on uh, three sides. Uh, one side was left unbuilt open to the Tagus River of course why would you not do that and uh, of the three sides they are arcaded with beautiful archways uh, today they are full of quite touristy uh, cafes and bars it's quite sort of the hub of the tourist centre uh, of the city I suppose so the Marques de Pombal decided that he wanted a square to rival all European squares. And so he enlisted the uh, architects Carlos Mardel and Eugenio dos Santos. To, well, they gave him what he wanted. It was designed, as I said, with one side open to the river and the other three for government ministries. And its centrepiece, Joaquim Machado de Castro's 14-metre-high equestrian statue of Dom José I, uh, monarch uh, who was reigning at the time of the earthquake. So as I mentioned, uh, as I was talking to you from the Castel de San Jorge, the thing that you really notice about Lisbon, the thing that's really striking about it, certainly compared to Madrid, is just how hilly it is. Seven Hills does have the kind of nickname of the city of the Seven Hills. Cinematic hillsides uh, that overlook the Rio Tejo, the Tagus River. And really, Lisbon is kind of like cradled between these seven hills and the River Tagus as well. It's a postcard perfect panorama, which I was trying to kind of get across to you uh, in that last bit of audio from where I was standing. And uh, from that viewpoint on the Castel de San Jorge, you can pretty much see the whole city. And going up to one of these viewpoints, of which there are many, which I'll mention a little bit in a minute, um, gives you a really kind of good perspective. It helps you kind of understand the layout of the city, which I must say is not big for a capital city, certainly compared to Madrid, which, you know, including the metro area, Madrid is, what, six million, and uh, the city of Madrid is maybe three million. Lisbon, on the other hand, is probably only around half a million, 700,000 for the centre, and maybe one and a half million in total for the metro area of Lisbon as well. So it does feel small. It's one of the things you 
really notice, and it certainly is part of its charm. It's a very relaxed, very laid back, very easy to navigate. Well, I say easy to navigate, um, it's, it's compact, but the hills do make getting around the city pretty exhausting, I have to say, especially if you're visiting, you know, in the summer months. Now, I think personally, my advice would be to go in the more shoulder seasons, maybe uh, April to June or September to November. It is actually one of the sunniest cities in Europe. I think it gets between, I don't know, 2,800 and 3,000 hours of sunshine a year, but it does get a little bit rainy uh, in the autumn and winter. But uh, navigating the city uh, can be a little bit tricky. Um, Well, not tricky, but just tiring because it's very, very hilly. It's got these seven hills, of course. So it sits on the Targus River, which, as we know, is the longest river on the Iberian Peninsula, which is more than 600 miles long. How old is Lisbon? Well, they say that actually after Athens, Lisbon is the second oldest uh, capital city in Europe, and certainly in Western Europe, at least. It's definitely older than London or Paris or even Rome. And, uh, well, Lisbon was actually ruled by the Romans, the Germans, the Arabs, really up until around 1147, when Portuguese crusaders finally conquered it. And then you'll notice really all around the city are these collection of terraces known as miraduros, or viewpoints. And really, they are some of the must-see things in the city, I would say. I would say that, kind of similar to Madrid, that Lisbon is not a city of must-see grand monuments per se. There are a few things, a few buildings and monuments of interest. But in general, it's a city for wandering around and more than anything, climbing up to these viewpoints and just enjoying the views across the city and across the river. Um, Just a few names of some of the uh, Miraduros or the viewpoints. You've got Portas do Sol, you've got São Pedro de Alcántara, you've got the Mirador de Grasa, and you've got the Mirador de Senora do Monte, and uh, of course the Castello de São Jorge, where I was talking to you from. All of these places offer you stunning viewpoints uh, across the city. Great place to go and sip your bica, which incidentally is Portuguese for a little espresso coffee, uh, or a bica. And for me in Lisbon, it's probably my favourite thing to do, is just uh, explore these different viewpoints, sit down, have a drink, have a coffee, have a beer, have a glass of uh, Portuguese wine, a bit of the uh, vinho verde, the Portuguese green green wine, which is very good, uh, and just in, just relax and enjoy the, the spectacular views. I think really that would be my top tip of what to do in, in Lisbon, is just, just appreciate the views, especially if you're going, you know, when the weather is beautiful, which most of the time it is. Just talking a little bit more about the history of the city and the kind of the history it's kind of helped shaped the city physically, as I mentioned earlier, um, Lisbon suffered a, a, a terrible earthquake, actually at 10am on the 1st of November it was, in 1755. Eight minutes of city shattering and shaking uh, spread across three tremors and then followed 40 minutes later by a massive tsunami, which then culminated apparently in a week-long firestorm that basically incinerated what was left from the earthquake was incinerated and the city was almost completely destroyed. And so that's the interesting thing about the city. There is an, a huge amount of the, what I would call the really old or ancient parts of the city left, apart from 
which is probably my favourite neighbourhood in Lisbon, which is called Alfama. Now, the Alfama district is this absolutely beautiful maze of cobblestone alleyways, little cute, cosy squares, houses with terracotta-tiled roofs, and literally charming surprises around every corner in the Alfama neighbourhood. Um, it's the oldest neighbourhood in Lisbon. Obviously, it was really the only neighbourhood that where most of it survived the earthquake, and it's considered one of the really most traditional neighbourhoods. It's perched on one of the seven hills next to the São Jorge Castle, where I was talking to you from, and it kind of slopes down, the neighbourhood slopes down to the Tagus River. And actually, Alfama neighbourhood was Lisbon. It was the entire city of Lisbon originally. Uh, strong Moorish influence, of course. The Moors ruled in uh, Lisbon for, for many, many centuries. And the name Alfama actually comes from the Arabic word Alhama, which means uh, baths or fountains. And at that time, it was actually a kind of upper-class residential area until the earthquakes did, I mean, did destroy some of the uh, mansions in the neighbourhood. And then it reverted back to being a kind of working-class fisherman quarter, if you like. And you really get a sense of that today. The Castello de San Jorge, then, this is probably one of the city's best vantage points that I was talking to you from earlier. I would say that it's, yeah, it's worth visiting. However, it does come with a quite high entry fee. Uh, We pay 10 euros each to go in. Uh, You can catch a tram up there. I certainly wouldn't really recommend walking from the centre up to the Castello de San Jorge unless you're feeling very energetic and the weather isn't particularly hot. But you can actually catch a tram up up to the to almost to the Castel de San Jorge, up to at least the Alfama neighbourhood, and then you can walk from there. And it's a beautiful walk up to this uh, up to the medieval castle or fortress, if you like. So the castle is kind of semi ruins. The most interesting thing about the castle really are the ramparts, and the ramparts are the parts that. Uh, afford you these uh, magnificent views across across the city and down to the Tagus River and just off into the distance uh, the Atlantic. The actual castle complex itself is not that exciting. You can walk around uh, the top, the turrets if you like, the kind of walls of the castle which takes you up even higher than you already are. Uh, it's got a little courtyard, it's got some attractive gardens and pine trees, it's a nice shaded spot I guess to sort of sit and spend uh, an hour or two Another recommendation for a, a good viewpoint, which is very close to the Castel de São Jorge, actually, um, is called the Miraduro Sofia de Melo. Sofia de Melo, which is about a ten-minute walk from the castle. I'm going to run through some of the other neighbourhoods in the city as well and just give you a little bit of a, a flavour of them and try and sort of piece them together to give you an idea a little bit of kind of how they uh, geographically relate to each other, how they're connected. So another neighbourhood is the Baixateado and that is located between the Alfama which, remember, is up on the hill. Another hilly neighbourhood, which is literally called the High Neighbourhood, which is called Bairro Alto or Barrio Alto. Baixa, which means baja or low, Baixa Chiado, is located between those two hills, between those two uh, neighbourhoods. And this is kind of an upscale neighbourhood, lots of grand cafes, art galleries. Uh, it's the centre of uh, the city's kind of literary 
uh, history. And it's also where you're going to find some of the most sort of more grander architecture in Lisbon, I would say, particularly the Carmo convent, uh, this medieval convent, which was almost completely destroyed in the earthquake in 1755, um, but whose facade was retained. And that is a really, really stunning uh, sight to see. If you walk up the Baixa neighbourhood, going away from the river, going slightly uphill, you're going to uh, reach the Parque Eduardo the Seventh, which I recommend doing because it gives you a really lovely view again across the city, uh, but particularly you see the whole city laid out before you, sloping down to the river. What you need to do is you walk up the Avenida de Liberdade, which is really the city's main avenue that slices right through the middle of the city, heading from the river up into the hills. And there you'll have these beautiful manicured gardens and lawns, uh, as I said, with these views down to the Tagus River. From there, what I would do is walk down the Avenida de Liberdade, the, the uh, Liberty Avenue, and that will take you to a square called Rocio Square, Praça Rocio, and that's about a half an hour walk. And then from Rocio Square, you can walk down Rua Augusta. Now, Rua Augusta, for me, is nothing special. It's the kind of main down town drag filled with fairly touristy restaurants and bars and lots of you know chain shops that you're going to see you know in pretty much any city around Europe or around the world really um, it's nothing much to look at however if you follow Rua Augusta which takes you down to the Plaza de Comercio which gives you uh, which is a very beautiful spectacular and grand square arcaded square there are cafes and bars there as well again a little bit touristy um, but you get this great view across out you can literally walk across the square and there's a road and you cross the road and you're literally standing right next to the Targos River in fact um, there is a little beach on the river as well so it's the center of the city next to the river and then from there you either go to the river or you go head up towards the hills and then on each side of the square you've got these neighborhoods which are basically on the hills which is your neighborhood of Alfama or the Barrio Alto. Just off the Rua Augusta actually this uh, main kind of shopping street I was telling you about there is a curious construction uh, a couple of blocks from there which is an outdoor uh, elevator a lift uh, it's called the Santa Justa lift. We tried to go on the lift but it was always it was really busy and it's quite limited space at the top of the lift um, so we didn't end up going up there it's one of the kind of typical viewpoints in the very centre of the city and the interesting thing about it when you see it is kind of strange because it's like an iron tower built in the middle of this very narrow street each side of the tower you've got uh, buildings um, and the tower just sort of pokes its head up above these buildings and then there's a walkway which connects to, to one of the buildings right next to it but it's just very uh, imposing steel structure basically if you're walking around the area you can't miss it you will see it and you will see it from uh, some of the other city viewpoints as well the interesting thing about it is that um, it was designed by uh, a guy called Ponsard and he was a disciple of Gustave Eiffel. You can kind of see the connection. This is an intricate lattice of iron girders and beams, quite ornately designed. And you can you can kind of see a bit of a connection with a mini Eiffel Tower, much, much smaller. In terms of eating and drinking in this area, I would give it a miss. It's, it's very touristy, nothing special. We certainly, walking around this area, didn't see anything that really... It's a kind of neighbourhood where you've got the guys standing out on the streets with menus in their hands 
questions, speaking to you in English, trying to, you know, touting, trying to get you to come in. The other thing which is typical of Lisbon are the trams, which I'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast. But also it's famous for the funiculars. Now it's got a handful of funiculars around the city to get people up and down these really steep streets. Now they're worth seeing, at least, or whether you actually want to hop on one, maybe, maybe not, depending how busy it is. And you can easily visit two of the most famous funiculars in the city. And what I would do is is, is head up to the Praça Rocio, the Rocio Square, or you could walk up to the Restauradores station, where you find the lower station of Ascensor da Gloria, which is on the corner of the Avenida de Libertad, which I mentioned. And this funicular connects the Restauradores Square with the Bairro Alto, the Barrio Alto, and uh, the funicular dates back to 1885. A really curious mode of transport, uh, probably one of the most photographed uh, funiculars in the city, I guess. Once you're at the top station, you'll find another viewpoint, another one of these Miraduros, and this one is called Miraduro de São Pedro de Alcántara. This really gives you fantastic views of the Barrio Alto, gives you great views of Chiado and across to Alfama and looking up to the Castello de São Jorge as well. And from the Barrio Alto, you will find the Ascensor da Bica. Uh, the Ascensor de Abica. Now, if you've seen photos of these ascensors or these funiculars in Lisbon, this is probably the one that you've seen the photo of. This is probably one of the most photographed funiculars, or the most, the most photographed funiculars in the city. Now, this is called the Ascensor da Bica, and this connects the Rua de São Paulo and another street called Largo do Calhariz. Um, and this basically is traversing what must be one of Lisbon's most steepest hills. A real workout for your calf muscles. Where we stayed was in the neighbourhood called Caixe do Chaudre. Now this is down at the bottom of the hill. It's not far from the Praça de Comercio, the Commerce Square. This apparently was once the kind of seedy area. This was the, the, the area frequented by the, you know, the hard drinking sailors coming in and out of Lisbon. I would say now it's actually quite trendy. Lots of uh, kind of international restaurants, cafes. That's where we stayed. Um, now I just basically stuck a pin in the map when I booked it because it was the most affordable option it's not a bad area at all it's not the probably most prettiest area of the city but it is close to the river and it is close to the commerce square and it's kind of easy to get your bearings from there and it's flat I think when you're booking your accommodation take that into account because if you're booking accommodation up in Alfama or in the Barrio Alto you're always going to be having to negotiate hills uh, you know, coming and going back to your accommodation. The thing that I will mention, which is in the Caixa de Sodre, is the timeout market. Now, the first time I went to the timeout market, um, when I first visited Lisbon, I was quite impressed with it. I thought, oh, this is a cool place. We went in there on, a, on which was our second visit, and I wasn't really blown away by it, to be honest. Um, it just felt a bit vacuous. What it is, is a market which has been sponsored by or funded by I think the Time Out magazine it's an indoor market with lots of and it's not you know it's not a kind of traditional market selling fruit and vegetables and meat and fresh produce and that kind of thing it's uh, it's it's an indoor market which has different food stands I suppose it's a bit like a food court basically the idea is that each of these food stands is sort of representing 
a kind of sister restaurant in the city somewhere. It's a nice idea, and it's maybe the place that I would go to if it was raining and I didn't want to schlep around the city looking for somewhere to eat, because you buy your food from one of the little uh, food... It's not really a stand, they're little mini restaurants, I suppose, like holes in the wall, and then it's got a big communal seating area in the middle, so you can just zip around, buy different things from different places, and then sit in the middle and eat. bit like, if anyone's been to Madrid listening to this, the Mercado de San Miguel, uh, it's a similar idea to that on a kind of bigger scale, I suppose. Yeah, it's maybe worth a look, but I would personally invest more time wandering around the city streets looking for, you know, more kind of traditional uh, restaurants. Apparently the uh, Time Out Market's kind of little slogan is bringing the best of the city under one roof. So there are about uh, 25 restaurants in the Time Out Market and there are a handful of, of bars as well. So another neighbourhood worth mentioning, was certainly worth mentioning and certainly worth visiting, although Karina and myself did not have time to include it on our itinerary, uh, on our visit, but I have been there before on my first visit to Lisbon, is, um, well, I wouldn't say it's a neighbourhood necessarily, but it's part of Lisbon called Belém. And really it's uh, not in the centre of the city or near to the centre of the city. It kind of feels like a separate town. It lies just to the west of central Lisbon or literally on the Targus River. And uh, it's a great place to go and spend half a day. The best way to get there is catch the tram or you can take a train from the Caixta or Sodre neighbourhood where we were staying. And you could also catch a taxi as well, I guess. Well, Belém is famous because it has its home to two uh, UNESCO World Heritage Sites. The first stop in the little mini town slash neighbourhood of Lisbon that you should visit is the Monasterio dos Jerónimos, the Jerónimos Monastery. Now this incredible building dates back to the 16th century. Somehow and luckily it survived the earthquake and it's one of the best examples of what they call the Manueline style of architecture which was essentially invented by King Manuel I and he kind of blended his favourite architectural styles all together which included late Gothic, Mudeja, Italian Arte. You can go inside and visit the main chapel for free, where you'll see the uh, the tomb of the navigator Vasco de Gama, and you can also visit the monastery itself, but that costs, uh, I think, about eight or nine euros. The monastery is absolutely spectacular, beautiful building. You can't miss it once you get into the uh, Belém neighbourhood. After the monastery, head to the riverfront and then have a look at the Padrão dos Descobrimentos, or the Monument of Discoveries. Uh, the current monument was completed in 1960, so it's, it's this modern concrete monument which celebrates the Portuguese age of exploration during the 15th and 16th centuries. As we know, the Portuguese were excellent navigators and shipbuilders. In fact, uh, Christopher Columbus came to study navigation in Lisbon. So from the Monument of Discoveries, you walk alongside the Tagus River to the very well-known Torre de Belém, another example of this uh, Manueline architectural style that again fortunately survived the uh, Lisbon earthquake. The Belém Tower, it's a curious tower right on the riverside, looks like it's about to topple into the water, sort of, kind of looks like it's been carved out of ivory. It's this beautiful white pale gold stone 
with a little kind of mini rampart which kind of acts as a balcony looking out onto the river. And this was built to really guard the entrance to Lisbon's harbour, which suffered a lot from numerous incursions from uh, unruly pirates. The whole district of Belém is charming. Great restaurants. I really wanted to talk about Fado, the very famous style of uh, Portuguese music, Fado, which means destiny or fate in Portuguese. It's that traditional form of music which has a kind of melancholic tone to it, very strong connections to sea, guitars, mandolins, um, very poetic. Fados have been performed around the port districts of Lisbon since the early 19th century and the Alfama neighbourhood which I mentioned earlier is one of those port districts. I guess if you're going to hear Fado music, uh, the Alfama neighbourhood is probably a good place to go and explore that option. We didn't see any, um, we didn't really have time. Um, I don't know, it depends if you're into that kind of thing or not. I, I have to say I'm not really a big fan of Fado. I find it a bit too melancholy and depressing, if I'm honest. But there are Fado performances, very you know, similar to you know, how you might experience flamenco music or flamenco performance you know, in Spain. There are restaurants which offer you know, Fado music with a meal included, probably going to be a bit expensive and touristy, or you might be lucky enough to stop by a bar and catch an informal Fado uh, performance in the same way that you might catch an impromptu flamenco performance in uh, somewhere in Spain. It's also uh, worth mentioning, if you are interested in Fado music, that there is in Lisbon a museum dedicated to the musical art of Fado as well. Now, when I think of uh, Lisbon, or in fact, when I think of Portugal in general, something that springs to mind is the Azulejos tiles, or the al or in Portuguese, very similar to Spanish, uh, the Azulejos. Um, now, these are beautiful, intricately hand-painted tiles, which you will see adorning most buildings, in fact, certainly uh, most buildings in Lisbon. And for me, Lisbon, it feels like an outdoor art gallery because everywhere you walk around the city, every other building is covered. The facades of the buildings are covered in this kind of public eye candy of these azulejo adorned buildings. Many of them are straightforward geometric designs, but also there are more elaborate ones as well, depicting historical scenes connected with uh, Portuguese history. Some of them are just uh, painted in blue and white, but many of the geometric designs are in all different bright colours and they're really spectacular especially when you get that bright sunlight hitting them. The history behind them, uh, well it's a legacy, they are a legacy of the Moors. The Azulejo tiles originally came from Egypt and um, the style was adopted by the Portuguese. In fact they first became popular in Portugal in the 1500s and their popularity decreased um, but there was this revival again of the Azulejos tiles in the 1950s so you will also see quite modern buildings or modern apartment buildings or at least buildings from the 50s and 60s again adorned with these beautiful colourful tiles and you will see religious buildings, churches as well uh, covered in Azulejos something that I think is very unique to Portugal and the great thing is and I would recommend this on my first visit to Lisbon I went there is there is the Museo Nacional do Azulejo, the National Azulejo Museum, um, which is uh, dedicated to all of the history and the art of this tile work in Portugal. Only about six or seven euros to go in, and, and the museum is actually housed inside what was a former convent.
convent, the convent of Madre Deus, which dates back to 1509. And the, the building itself, where the museum is housed, is, is, is really worth visiting uh, in its own right. While we're talking about tiles, I guess it's worth mentioning the paving in uh, Lisbon. And again, not just in Lisbon, but in any anywhere I think I've been in Portugal, it's the same style of paving the streets. And I'm not quite sure what the story is behind it. I did hear, overhear a tour guide in Lisbon saying that there was a special story behind this unique style of paving uh, in Portugal and certainly in Lisbon. And everywhere you walk around the city, you will notice under your feet uh, a very ornate and intricate way of paving the, the streets and the pavements. It looks like black and white shards of marble. And these uh, little shards of marble stone are set into the ground obviously but they are laid out in such a way that all over the city they use these black and white stones to create beautiful geometric patterns uh, in the pavements and in the squares all around the city and again these make spectacular photographs you will find yourself not only looking up at these azulejo tiles but you'll also say you'll also find yourself looking down below your feet to see all over the city these really, really intricate, beautifully designed, basically mosaics uh, everywhere you go around the city, black and white mosaic uh, designs uh, of all of the pavements and squares. Okay, let's talk about transport. Uh, now, as I said, the city is very compact, walkable in terms of the, the fact that you're not going to be walking any huge, huge distances. The problem is you're going to be giving your calf muscles a really good workout. It's impossible to navigate the city without climbing very steep hills. Now, my advice is, is to use the tram system. Now, in Lisbon, you have two types of trams. You have the modern trams, which navigate the kind of wide avenues and the flatter parts of the city, and um, which extend out into the kind of outer neighbourhoods and the suburbs, I suppose. But in the centre of the city, you have these iconic vintage electric trams, yellow and white in colour. They're called electricos, and they've been shaking and rattling and rolling their way around the city since about 1901. Before that, they were actually pulled by horses, but they've had an electric, the electric tram system in the city since the very early 1900s. The iconic tram route, which everyone catches and which we did, we caught the 28E, the 28, number 28 tram. Uh, anywhere that you're walking around the centre of Lisbon, you can't fail to miss it. You will see it because you will hear it clanking along. really adorable really beautiful wooden rickety old trams a great way to explore the city and uh, saving your legs in the process and it's just a really fun experience and it's amazing to see how these trams negotiate these incredibly steep streets and really tight bends as well we use the 28 to get around and get up to Alfama and uh, sort of navigate the centre and they're really good value as well what we did is we bought a 24-hour pass uh, which costs about 6 euros, 6.80, nearly 7 euros, something like that. Valid for 24 hours. You can use it on all of the trams and the buses. And in fact, you can even use it to go up on the some of the lifts as well. 
You can uh, purchase just a, a one-way ticket from the driver on board, but if you want to buy one of these 24-hour passes, you can buy them in the metro stations, but you can also buy them in the little lottery shops, you know, where they sell national lottery tickets, where people go to put bets on horses and gambling, that kind of thing. I can't, I can't remember what they're called. And they also sort of sell, like, tobacco as well, or they might some of them might act like a sort of post office. Anyway, that's where we went. You can buy your ticket in there, like I said, for less than seven euros. gives you unlimited use of these tram networks for 24 hours um, and it's well worth it the 28 as i said does this kind of circuit of the city and uh, the tram goes between alfama in the east and the Praça de martin moniz in the west the trams that are in use today i'm not talking about the modern ones but the older ones are the trams which date back to the 1930s and they're very small and they're still used today basically because modern trams cannot navigate these tight curves bends and, and steep hills Okay, so let's talk food and drink. Food and drink in uh, Lisbon is, in my experience, fantastic. You've got to know where to go, I suppose. Avoid the touristy places, like I mentioned. Like That goes for anywhere in the world. Seafood, fish and meat as well. Um, very affordable. If you've managed to find a kind of normal, everyday neighbourhood restaurant, incredibly good value. The two nights that we were there, we ate out and uh, we paid for basically a three-course meal and a bottle of wine. Something like... 35 euros I mean really fantastic mind-blowingly good value but in terms of what you're going to find commonly on offer salt cod bacalao everywhere dried salted cod um, you have millions of ways of preparing it you have bacalao abrash which is shredded cod with onions and eggs and potatoes uh, commonly found up in the uh, barrio alto you will quite simply just have grilled cod you'll have all types of fish uh, tuna monkfish sardines uh, grilled very simply with potatoes and salad is a very common uh, main course you'll find octopus and tuna shrimp clams and snails as well snails are quite popular but one of my favorite preparations of the uh, bacalao is the croqueta bacalao croquette basically unlike spanish croquettes the portuguese ones are not made with like a bechamel sauce inside but they're made with potatoes so they're mashed potato flaked uh, bacalao cod flaked in mixed with parsley garlic salt and pepper and then sometimes they're coated in like uh, breadcrumbs and deep fried absolutely delicious delicious snack you find them in lots of hole in the wall kind of places around the city uh, just to take away basically like a sort of little tapas almost you can find them in not all restaurants but some restaurants will offer them as a starter or as a snack to go with a drink um, i would highly recommend trying them um, it would be remiss of me not to mention the pastel de nata or the pastiche de nata. Pastiche is the plural, pastel de nata in the singular. These are the famous egg custard tarts. Absolutely wonderful. Um, <laughs> very addictive. Um, yeah, egg custard tarts. They're actually invented by Catholic monks at the Monastero de los Jerónimos in uh, Belén. They've been famously served since 1837 in the Antigua Confitaria de Belém. And you can find them everywhere in the city today, absolutely everywhere. So they're little crisp puff pastry nests filled with custard cream, baked until they're golden, and then they're dusted with cinnamon. 
The most famous place to try them, is, as I said, is the Pastéche de Belém, which has been going since 1837. Interestingly, the origin behind the pastéche was that nuns and monks used to use egg whites to starch their clothes. So they only used the egg whites to starch their clothes. Hence, they always had loads and loads of egg yolks left over. A dish that I ordered one evening when we ate out in this beautiful little restaurant up in the Barrio Alto was a dish called feijoada. Now, feijoada is a stew of beans, beef and pork. And actually, I didn't really know what it was until I basically just said to the guy in the restaurant, you know, what would you recommend? What is the most kind of delicious thing that you, know, you have on the menu? What would you order? And he said to me, oh, you must try, you must try the feijoada. And wow, this <laughs> is really huge portion, a really heavy stew of beans, beef, pork. Uh, they also throw in uh, like blood sausage and basically their Portuguese version of chorizo, which is called chorizo, cooked over a low heat for a long time. Wow, it's so flavoursome. I, I was absolutely blown away by this dish. It's served with a side of rice and just a basic salad, but absolutely delicious, very hearty. Probably more of a winter dish, if I'm honest. Um, I was absolutely stuffed. I was in a food coma after eating it, but it was so flavoursome that I just couldn't stop myself. So the feijoada, it reminded me a lot of the fabada, which you find in the north of Spain. And it also reminded me slightly of the cocido madrileño, the uh, stew that we, we get here in Madrid, although that is certainly something that you would only eat really in the winter months. Um, moving on to drink... The thing which is very typical in Lisbon, very specific to Lisbon, um, is this little tipple, this little cherry liqueur called ginjinja. You find it all over Lisbon, and it's a little cherry liqueur, like I said, served in little shot glasses. They sell it in various kiosks around the city or hole-in-the-wall bars. Sometimes it's also served in a little chocolate cup, so you drink the little cherry liqueur and then you eat the chocolate cup as well. I would say that's maybe a step too far. But do try it. It's uh, it's an acquired taste, I guess. I like it. Um, I think Karina said it reminded her of like a cough medicine. In fact, while we were there, we went to the, the home, the birthplace of Jinjinja. And here's a little bit of audio I recorded there. I'm standing outside a place called A Jinjinja. A Jinjinja. Some uh, locals just going in and having a quick shot now. A tiny little hole in the wall place. Ginginia is a cherry liqueur and you can order it with whole cherries. Mm. Let's take a little sip now. With whole cherries, the kind of almost <laughs> been marinated or pickled in, in the alcohol. They, they've kind of faded to a kind of white colour. So you can have the liqueur with or without a couple of cherries in the drink. It's uh, like a brownie red colour, as you would expect. And the place where we've just um, ordered one uh, was actually owned by a Galician named Espineira. It was the first shop in Lisbon to sell the beverage, after which it is named, and uh, which soon became one of the city's ex libris. Advised by a friar from the Igreja de Santo Antonio, Espineira made the experiment of letting cherries ferment in brandy, adding sugar, water and cinnamon. Success was immediate, both because it was sweet and because it was inexpensive. And ginginha became the typical beverage of Lisbon. And it's true. Um, you can find these little ginginha holes in the walls around the city, but also probably nicer, actually, in some of the little squares. They have these little ginginha 
stands, uh, little mini bars inside little metal, kind of very decorative, very pretty little metal round. They look a bit like sort of news kiosk stands, the old style ones, but they actually sell Xinjinia. Uh, it's got quite a kick to it. It's good. Okay, so how long should you spend in Lisbon? Well, we were there for two nights and about uh, two and a half days, I guess. I would say warrants a bit more time. We couldn't fit in everything that we would have liked to have done. It's the perfect city to visit for maybe three nights, four days, or maybe even uh, five nights. And there are also really beautiful places to visit surrounding uh, Lisbon, like the uh, town of Sintra, Cascais as well. Uh, one thing that's worth mentioning is language. Now, obviously, Portugal, Portuguese. Now, when I see Portuguese written, um, I can almost understand it, you know, to a, you know, a, a good level. Um, when you see Portuguese written, it looks very similar to Spanish. I would say maybe 70% of the vocabulary is very similar to Spanish and maybe 30% of the vocabulary is completely different to Spanish, maybe more similar to French or Italian. However, the Portuguese accent and the Portuguese way of pronouncing vowel sounds and the letter S is completely different to Spanish. So when you hear Portuguese spoken compared to how it's written, I would say it's pretty difficult to understand. Now we managed to communicate in Spanish for most of the time. I think what the taxi driver who took us from the airport to the centre described as Portugal. You can communicate in Spanish. Lots of people in uh, Lisbon will speak English. I noticed that the level of English was pretty high. Really of course as I would always recommend, do try and make an effort to learn a few basics in Portuguese. Okay, so coming up, I'll be taking you from Lisbon, hopping on a plane to the island of Madeira. Uh, same sort of thing, I'll be running through places we visited, my kind of observations on the island, and uh, of course, food and drink as well. So if you're not really interested in Madeira, then <laughs> you could uh, stop listening now. I know this has been a long episode, quite a lot to, to cram in. But if you're interested in uh, Madeira, then stay tuned for the second half of the podcast. Just before we do that, just a quick reminder that When in Spain has a presence on all the usual social media channels. We've got a When in Spain Facebook group and page. Uh, you can follow When in Spain on Instagram. The handle is When in Spain One. And incidentally, I've posted lots of uh, photos and uh, a few little videos on the Instagram account from Lisbon and Madeira as well. So if you'd like to get a bit of a visual idea of the places that I've been talking about, then then check out Instagram. We're also on Twitter and When in Spain has its very own website, which is wheninspainpodcast.com. Okay, so Madeira. Well, from Lisbon, it's about an hour and a half flight out into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, <laughs> I would say that maybe when we think of Madeira, we maybe just think of that fortified wine. Cristiano Ronaldo, one of its most famous exports. In fact, I saw the Cristiano Ronaldo uh, statue 
at the airport in Madeira. At the beginning, the statue was quite controversial because it was a really bad likeness. It looked nothing like Cristiano Ronaldo. Well, a kind of like a mutilated version. They've since replaced the statue with one that looks more like Ronaldo. Um, but you will see that at the airport when you arrive. The other thing that's interesting about the approach to Madeira um, is the uh, location of the airport. Madeira is basically a huge volcanic rock with very few places which are actually uh, big enough and flat enough to, to accommodate a runway. So what they've done in Madeira is they've built the runway out on a kind of uh, platform on big concrete pillars. So the runway extends out into the sea and it's a really interesting approach uh, when you come into land. And the other thing I noticed as well when you leave the airport, the road from the airport kind of curves under the runway and underneath the runway I've never seen this anywhere else in the world before underneath the runway are tennis courts basketball courts and things like that is really interesting the way they've designed it anyway Madeira which means uh, wood in Portuguese owing to its green and wooded nature is about 540 miles from Lisbon and about 360 miles from Morocco it's like a sub subtropical speck in the Atlantic, bursting with exotic colour, warm year-round, rarely gets below around 20 degrees Celsius, absolutely enchanting island. Uh, Some people call it the Pearl of the Atlantic, the Island of Eternal Spring. It is really like an emerald isle, I suppose. It reminded me of a kind of cross between the north of Spain, owing to its greenery, reminded me of a mix between Galicia, Asturias, uh, reminded me a little bit of Wales back in the UK or Cornwall in the southwest of the UK, mixed with kind of subtropical islands. Some people call it the Hawaii of Europe and uh, very dramatic. It's volcanic. It has two or three of Portugal's highest peaks, which I'll talk about a little bit later. And really the attraction of the island is the natural beauty. Um, But having said that, there are so many things you can do for such a small island, particularly outdoor activities. You can do mountain walks. There must be thousands of kilometres of hiking routes, sailing. You can do dolphin and whale watching, diving, fishing, canyoning, surfing, paragliding, an abundance of uh, outdoor activities to do. And one of my favourites, which we did a little bit of while we were there, is something called Levada walking. Now, Levadas are these kind of of uh, water courses or man-made water channels which direct water all over the island. They start up in in the highest peaks of the island and they channel water down into the valleys to the villages and towns. And in order to maintain these levadas, these water channels, which are only about a metre or so wide, they have pathways running alongside them. So therefore, they are the ideal uh, hiking routes and many of the hiking routes around the island uh, run alongside these water channels, these levadas. Um, But Madeira Island, it's actually an archipelago uh, situated in the North Atlantic Ocean uh, in the region known as Macronesia, 250 miles north of the Canary Islands and uh, about 320 miles west of Morocco. Not a particularly large island, 34 miles long and at its widest point around 14 miles and it has around 90 miles of coastline and uh, rises in the centre to the uh, Riviru Peak, which uh, hits 1,861 metres.
meters, as just over six thousand feet. One thing you'll notice about one thing you'll notice about the geography of the island is that, as I said, there are really very few parts of the island which are actually flat. So even the coastline, the mountains of the interior don't slope kind of down gently to the beaches. You have these very dramatic cliff drops down to the sea. The other thing talking about beaches on the island is that uh, they're very stony and rocky. There are a couple of sandy beaches on Madeira, um, but they're actually man-made. They actually imported uh, fine sand from Morocco, in fact. But you'll find most of the beaches around the island are very rugged and rocky and pebbly. You'll also find that to get to the beaches, you have these very steep descents, either if you're driving in a car. In fact, uh, many of the beaches actually have cable cars, which take you down from the clifftops to the beaches. And just while I'm talking about uh, driving, it's important to mention, I think, that really the best way to get the most out of Madeira is to hire a car. And that's what we did. We hired a car at the airport and we had the car for the entire time that we were there. To be honest with you, really you need a car to explore the island properly. There are bus routes which connect the kind of bigger towns around the island. Um, But if you really want to get out into the wilderness, if you want to see these mountains and these hiking routes and and you want to see as much of the island as possible, really, I would say a car is essential. But on that note, I will also say that driving in Madeira is pretty... Um, a pretty terrifying experience, if I'm honest. I mean, apart from one main road which uh, circumnavigates the island, once you get into the interior, the roads are very narrow, very uh, steep. And the local drivers, I guess, because they're so used to these uh, narrow, twisty roads, um, drive at very high speeds around them. And uh, including my friend Betty, um, I was braking for her in the passenger seat as she was driving. Driving. Um, keep your wits about you if you're driving in Madeira. It's not for the faint-hearted. Anyway, a little bit of the history behind the island. A guy called Infante Dom Enrique, better known in English as Prince Henry the Navigator, he gathered together the finest cartographers and navigators of Portugal at the beginning of the 15th century. And while his initial plan was to extend the knowledge of the coast of West Africa, but that was when he stumbled across the island of Madeira. Uh, In 1419, he returned, uh, I believe, a year later to settle the island and... uh, Uh, The archipelago uh, is considered to be the first territorial discovery of the exploratory period of the Age of Discovery. Uh, These days, it's a popular year-round resort. It uh, hosts around 1.4 million tourists uh, each year, almost five times its population. Um, Obviously, when we were there, it was very quiet, nowhere near that level of uh, visitors uh, due to the current situation with COVID-19. But it is uh, a a major stop-off for cruise ships. There were no cruise ships in the port in the capital of the island, Funchal, when we were there but it is a common uh, stop off on uh, on the cruise ship routes population of the island is around 250,000 as i said the capital is 
is uh, called Funchal, and uh, Funchal's uh, location is sort of nestled in a kind of natural amphitheatre, I suppose, facing the Atlantic with the backdrop of really dramatic mountains behind it, surrounded with on the mountain and hillsides with banana plantations, tropical gardens, green mountain scenery, very lush, and a really relaxed city. I mean, a small city uh, feels more like a town, a population, I think, of around 130, 140,000. The history of Funchal dates back around 500 years, as said when the early Portuguese settlers colonised the coast. Where the name comes from, Funchal, comes from the Portuguese Funchou, uh, which means fennel, which uh, the fennel plant, or I think it's a herb, isn't it? Uh, fennel, grew in abundance in Funchal. So that's uh, where the name uh, Funchal came from, from the abundance of fennel which grew in the area. So it's the centre of the Madeiran industry, really, commerce, communications. The older part of the city is dominated by the Say Cathedral, which was uh, built between 1485 and 1514. A maze of steep, narrow, cobblestone streets, uh, whitewashed buildings, uh, lots of gardens, tropical plants and flowers. It has a quite a large port, obviously, as I mentioned, uh, for the cruise ships. For me, the thing that I really liked about uh, Funchal was the uh, cable car, which you can catch up to the village of Monte. It's a really worthwhile trip when you're in Funchal to catch the cable car up into the mountainside uh, village of Monte. It has a beautiful church there. It also has lots of beautiful uh, gardens as well. And Funchal's Botanical Garden is up near Monte as well. I really recommend the 15-minute cable car journey. Maybe if you suffer from vertigo, not such a good idea. It takes about 15 minutes. A bit expensive. I think a return trip is 16 euros, but I would say it's well, well worth it. Just staying with Funchal, one of the interesting areas for me was uh, Funchal's old town or the Zona Bella. You will first stumble across the Mercado dos Lavadores, uh, which is an art deco indoor market. Just past that, you will head into the old part of the town, which is kind of old sea merchants' houses and 19th century fishermen's cottages. Um, Parts of it are quite run down. It's quite surprising. And you get a good bird's eye view of the neighbourhood when you take the cable car up to Monte. But amazing just how many just derelict uh, and unused houses there are in the neighbourhood, kind of falling down, roofs missing, windows missing, this kind of thing. Gives it a certain charm. Um, But you will find the old town is kind of the centre of uh, the restaurant scene. A bit touristy. There is one particular street uh, which we walk down, which is called Rua da Santa Maria. And a lot of the restaurants along there are, I don't know, the kind of guys standing at the restaurants with the menus in the hand, like I said, uh, in, similar to Lisbon on the Rua Augusta. It's very pretty, and I'm not saying that the restaurants are not good, but we just sort of felt a bit pressured walking down that street. You're kind of trapped all the way along the length of this uh, Rua da Santa Maria. Um, what we did was we actually walked back up the other side 
side of the street and found a a more traditional everyday restaurant where we noticed lots of locals were eating. So we decided to go there. And at the end of the Rua de Santa Maria, it opens out into uh, a lovely square called Largo do Corpo Santo, where you will find the Capella do Corpo Santo, which is the old fisherman's chapel. And then just past there, as you had head uh, back towards the seafront, uh, you find the uh, station to catch the cable car up to Monte. Just another thing to mention about Monte, and unfortunately we didn't do it, is you may have seen this before, but Monte is the little village where they have these street toboggans uh, pushed by guys wearing these white uniforms uh, used to be used uh, back in the early 20th century as a way of transporting goods downhill but today it's a fun thing to do an attraction to do you can pay I don't know how much it is to sit on one of these street sledges they're like wooden sledges with wicker baskets you basically sit in a wicker basket and these two guys put you at very high speeds down these winding streets it looks great fun from the videos i've seen of it sadly the day we went uh, which was a sunday uh, they weren't operating but we did see all of the uh, sledges all of the toboggans the wicker baskets stacked up in the street so just another note about the say cathedral as i said it was a 16th century cathedral which uh, once upon a time oversaw the world's largest diocese from portugal's overseas territories from madeira to brazil and even as far as angola well its importance is reflected by this style of architecture you remember i talked about in uh, in lisbon this manueline architectural style and you'll see that the say cathedral's clock tower dominates uh, Funchal's skyline um, well I say dominates but I mean it's not that big it's just that Funchal is on such a small scale um, you know for me it kind of looks like a normal church tower really not far from Funchal is a place called Cabo Girau um, it's about three kilometers west of a place called Camara de Lobos which are Madeira's highest sea cliffs which rise to 580 meters the reason for going there is there's a viewing platform an absolutely spectacular viewing platform which has a glass floor not for people who suffer from vertigo who don't like heights but I think that goes for most of Madeira um, really if you don't like heights don't go to Madeira unless you just plan staying in Funchal all of the time but it's a really spectacular viewpoint Cabo de Giral you've got this viewing platform which sticks out over the cliff um, which kind of seem to be becoming very fashionable all over the world now don't they these uh, with these see-through glass floors and you get a great view across to Funchal from there as well earlier I mentioned these things called levadas. Now, these are aquifers, basically, that carry water around the island. They were actually developed in the 16th century by Portuguese uh, builders uh, to carry water to agricultural regions in the south from the centre of the island and from the north. Madeira is very mountainous. So these levadas kind of skirt mountain size. They're cut into the side of cliffs and mountains. And, uh, well, today the levadas don't only supply water to the southern parts of the island. They also provide hydroelectric power and there are over 2,000 kilometers of these levadas 1,300 miles of these levadas and they have kind of accidentally doubled up 
as a network of walking and hiking routes um, because the levadas, which are kind of uh, made of stone and are about a metre wide um, with the water flowing through them, uh, of course, to be able to maintain these levadas and uh, sluice them off and clean them out, they also built a network of paths alongside them. And they're quite an easy, for the most part, relaxing walking experience through the countryside. A couple of the levada walks that Karina and I did was uh, one called Levada do Calderao Verde and the Levada do Carnisal. And these levadas often take you to these beautiful interior lakes and waterfalls. Uh, if you check out the When in Spain Instagram account, you'll see some photos that I posted of a really beautiful waterfall. Uh, one of the uh, these trails takes you to a place called Rabasal. It takes you to a place called the 25 Fontes or 25 waterfalls, cascades and pools, uh, a great place to chill out and relax. They do get busy. I mean, obviously, with the situation of COVID-19, these places weren't as busy as you, as they normally are. There, We managed to get the place to ourselves for about 20 minutes and then other people started arriving. The recommendation is if you want to enjoy and have these waterfalls and these uh, springs and little uh, interior lakes and pools to yourself is to go early in the morning. But uh, we were lucky enough to go in the afternoon, sort of late afternoon, and it wasn't too busy. For me, one of the highlights of the island was this place called Miraduro dos Balcóis, balcony viewpoint, basically. You have to drive up to a village called Ribeiro Frio, which is very picturesque, set in a very, very green valley. And uh, you do about a half an hour walk from the village and it takes you to this place, as I said, called uh, Miraduro dos Balcóis. Wow, the view from there is absolutely spectacular. You've got this magnificent viewpoint which overlooks the valley of Ribeira de Matadje. And from there you can see two of the island's highest peaks with this cauldron of rock below them. And then as you look through, down through the valley, past uh, the two highest peaks, which are incidentally the Pico Ribo and the Pico de Areiro, uh, respectively 1,862 metres high and 1,818 metres high. You look past them uh, through this valley, down and out across to the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, if it's a clear day, you can just about make out um, Madeira's sister island of Porto Santo on the horizon. It's absolutely spectacular. Just don't think I've ever in Europe seen uh, scenery like it. Um, very dramatic landscape. In some places you're actually looking down on the clouds and then with this beautiful view out to the Atlantic Ocean. One of my other favourite places that we visited while we were there was a little town called Porto Moniz. The famous thing that Porto Moniz has is these beautiful natural swimming pools. So you have these swimming pools, there's a sort of rocky outcrop which uh, has created a kind of natural enclosure where the seawater enters, comes crashing in, and then inside these uh, rocks they've built uh, swimming pools, a kind of network of, of, of swimming pools which are fed by the natural seawater. Um, and that's a fantastic place to spend an hour 
afternoon. Really beautiful scenery, pretty uh, little town. Um, gets quite busy with locals who go there to enjoy the pools, but uh, I think you, you pay an entry fee to go in. It's about three euros, um, and it's got you know changing rooms and uh, cafes and uh, sunbeds and this kind of thing. But it's a really uh, beautiful place to go and relax and uh, swim in this uh, chilly salt water. Uh, the thing you'll notice with the, the, the waters around the island of Madeira, every beach you go to, uh, the water is pretty cold. It's that Atlantic water, very different to uh, the uh, soupy Mediterranean Sea, that's for sure. While we were there, our friend Betty, who I mentioned is from Madeira, took us to really her favourite place. Uh, this is called Miraduro Acharas da Cruz, which is a viewpoint with a cable car. So you take the cable car down to a rocky, pebbly beach, which is surrounded by very steep cliffs. As I said, you have to take the cable car down to the beach. You you can walk down, but it's a very long and fairly treacherous walk down to the beach. But Miraduro Achadas da Cruz is the top of the cliff. You take the cable car down to a beach which is called Callao. There are no facilities or anything. It's a very wild, rugged beach next to these cliffs. The scenery is spectacular, very dramatic. But along this small strip of land just below the cliffs are wooden huts, cabanas, like uh, small wooden huts and improvised shacks, uh, which are kind of fenced off using uh, old... uh, sugarcane and bamboo so they've got these little basically little houses where the locals use betty our friend is lucky enough to own one of these little beachside shacks i suppose Uh, no electricity no toilet facilities running water yes and candles and the sound of the sea Um, so we spent a night down on this this beach called Callao. We stayed in a little cabin, which was uh, tiny, and we had a barbecue. We drank wine, and we fell asleep in this cabin, which did have beds and you know blankets, very basic. I mean, this place is magical. The people that own these little cabins along there are really lucky, because this is a little slice of Madeiran paradise. I mean, really remote. I woke up in the morning to the sound of a handful of surfers uh, out in the sea. So I'm going to leave it there in terms of places to visit. There are so many little villages and beaches and coves and cliffs and viewpoints all around the island. I just think, you know, this normally is a podcast about Spain. I'm just touching, giving you a little flavour of what Madeira was like. So I'm not going to go into extreme detail of every single place we visited. But all I can say is that in my experience in general for the 10 days or so that we were there, um, I was absolutely blown away by the island. It is absolutely beautiful. You know, it's a place to go really if you're into natural beauty. It's not hectic. Let's look at food on the island. Um, Well, actually talking about Crops first, actually. Crops historically grown on the island include sweet potatoes, which are very uh, common on the menu there. Sugarcane is widely um, cultivated on the island. And then fruits, oranges, lemons, guavas, mangoes, loquats. These things called custard apples, figs, pineapples, bananas, banana plantations everywhere. I've never seen actually so many banana plantations. Um, I mean, to think it's a 
European island. It's kind of strange to see all these bananas everywhere. Um, but yeah, banana plantations and vineyards, of course, as well for the local wine. The Madeira wine uh, really dominate the island. In terms of food, then, uh, food and drink, you can eat really well and very affordably. A lot of the food similar to mainland Portugal, um, espada, the uh, black scabbard fish, tuna, marlin, seafood in general, shrimp and octopus and squid and all of those kinds of things. Bacalao, of course, is very popular, served grilled or made into the little croquetas of bacalao, which I mentioned before. The thing that we ate a lot of are things called lapas and lapas are limpets. And these are a common local, I would say delicacy because they're kind of, you know, working man's food. Or um, But people are allowed to collect a certain number of uh, lapas from, from the rocks around the island and they do and we met betty's brother and he'd collected a a couple of kilos of lapas these limpets and you put them shell face down into a pan with some uh, butter and garlic and parsley and lemon and you cook them through and then you just suck them out of their shells with the butter and the garlic absolutely delicious very common thing to eat on the island and we also ordered them a few times uh, in the restaurants there as well meat is also big on the island Uh, the most popular meat dish on the island is something called espetada and espetada is basically large chunks of beef which are rubbed in garlic and salt bay leaves and then is left to marinade for a few hours in the local meat Madeira wine, olive oil, and then it's um, cooked like a kebab. It's uh, uh, skewered onto a laurel stick and then it's grilled over a barbecue. That's what we ate down at uh, the cabin on the beach side and it just tasted and smelt wonderful next to the sea. Uh, in terms of sweets, the Madeira cake, the Bolo de Mel, which is a kind of sugarcane honey cake. And the custom in Madeira is that you should never cut it with a knife. Not quite sure why, I'm guessing because for some reason it brings bad luck, but you have to break it into pieces using your hands. That's the ritual. A very rich and heavy and sweet cake. I quite like it. The other thing that I really enjoyed, which was unusual, was this thing called milio frito, which is basically polenta, which is cooked and then cut into chunks and deep fried and it's seasoned with herbs and in terms of drinks of course you've got the famous Madeira wine there are the Madeira white wines that we found sort of grown in these volcanic vineyards the Madeira wine is sort of darker and quite sweet it's served in a sort of small glass really I would say more like a sort of dessert wine but the thing that you must try if you ever go to Madeira is this drink called poncha uh, it's a traditional drink from the island, made from aguadente, which is distilled from the local sugar cane. And then it's mixed with honey and more sugar, and then usually mixed with a fruit juice. The common varieties are orange or lemon, but you can get mango and melon and other flavours as well. But the common ones are orange and lemon. So basically, it's sort of like a rum and fruit juice drink. And boy, does it pack a punch. It's really strong. It's served in quite small glasses. Uh, Most of the typical bars that serve it, which are all around the island, give you a little plate of monkey nuts, peanuts to, to eat with it. And in Madeira, they say... The locals say that the poncha cures the common cold and that people are encouraged to drink it if they have uh, cold or flu-like symptoms. And it is strong, to maximum. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to walk. Um, We went to a little poncha bar in a little village called Ribeira Brava, which was right in the middle of this uh, beautiful valley, a sort of roadside bar. The worrying thing was there were people in there drinking, you know, putting away these ponchas and then getting on their motorbikes or getting in their cars, navigating these um, twisty turns 
Fernie Rhodes. But anyway, uh, that is a must try if you're in Medina. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there and I'm not going to rattle on for much longer. This has been probably the longest When in Spain episode ever, which is ironically not about Spain. But anyway, um, I hope you've uh, managed to stay uh, the course. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Next episode, we're going to be back to normal with uh, all things Spain. Actually, next episode, I'm going to bring you my answers to the ask me anything questions that I put to the group so I'm hoping the next episode will be a really useful mix of practical information and insights about Spain and living in Spain and life in Spain and moving here and my story um, which I'm going to share with you guys in the next episode which I'm going to start editing now basically so your next episode will be coming very soon and then I've got guests lined up for episodes uh, coming up in the next few weeks so do stay tuned for that I will leave it there for this episode and bid you hasta luego.